Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, the podcast focused on helping you live healthier so that you can do what you want to do. Today's guest brings a new perspective to the show, and uh, Dr. Sam Spinelli is a physical therapist entrepreneur up in Canada who is passionate about helping people understand their bodies through movement and pain. Our discussion this podcast covers many topics, including back pain, the idea of preventing injury, and the practice of physical therapy itself. And uh, just a quick heads up that later on in the podcast, we do have an interruption where Dr. Uh, Spinelli's AirPod die and we also add a special guest but for now let's get into the show hi everybody welcome to the preventive medicine podcast on today's episode we have with us dr samuel spinelli doctor of physical therapy after receiving his degree from the massachusetts college of pharmacy and health sciences he went on to found citizen athletics and e3 rehab and also has quite the following on instagram uh, he currently is residing in british columbia canada and we'd like to welcome him to the show today so dr spinelli welcome to the show Thanks for having me on, guys. We'll jump right into some questions here. So first question for you, uh, Dr. Spinelli, is what made you enter the world of physical therapy? What kind of got you interested in that? And then what led to your development of your Instagram? Yeah, great questions. I was initially a strength and conditioning coach. I got myself into the fitness industry pretty early on while I was still in high school and had some great mentors who really encouraged me to go to university and become more knowledgeable and just continue to build my skill set and expand my knowledge base. And along that way, I started to find myself struggling when I would have athletes that were injured, not really sure how to help them the best ways that I could. I'd refer them out and I'd have people just saying like, Oh, don't, don't strength train anymore. Don't do any of these kinds of things. And like never seemed to be something that I agreed with. And as I started to find more people that were out in the field, at the time, there wasn't a lot of people that were both a physical therapist and a strength and conditioning coach. So there were, there were some people that were able to guide me a little bit in that area, but most of them were not highly knowledgeable in that. And that's where the idea came to go and kind of blend both of them. So then I chased my physical therapy degree. And then while in school, I started my Instagram channel just out of purely frustration in the education that I was getting and uh, looking for some sort of outlet where... I was spending my time hanging out with guys like Quinn Hennick, Derek Miles, Michael Ray. And uh, I was just finding that the stuff that I was being taught in school did not align with all of the research that I was reading. And I wanted some way to like share the messages that I was reading and learning that didn't align with what I was being taught. And I wanted to just kind of continue to grow from there. 
Yeah, I think we'll touch on a little bit about more like physical therapy itself later on in this. Um, but for some reason, whenever you think of physical therapy, you think that the people who are going through school understand something about strength training and how it like applies to health and like physical therapy itself. But for some reason, that isn't the case. I'm not exactly sure why. So what you're doing is absolutely amazing. I'm uh, scrolling through your posts and they're very informative. So I just want to give you props for that. Thank you. So leading on to that, um, we ask everyone the same question kind of on here. One of the things that we try to do on this podcast is get different perspectives from different people. And the main question is, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Because to everyone, it means slightly different things. And then there's some consensus and sometimes there's something slightly different. So what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I definitely agree that there's going to be a huge spectrum because I don't think that there is one necessary agreed upon definition for that. And in my mind, I view it as essentially the different characteristics and various activities that we can do on a regular basis that will reduce our likelihood of chronic illness and exasperated disability. So um, that's a pretty vague definition, but I think mm -hmm. inherently with preventative medicine, you're going to be looking at an incredibly wide spectrum of things. Definitely. And I think one of the beauties of preventive medicine is that it is so broad. There's just so many different aspects of it. And that's why we like to have different perspectives, um, like yourself being from a physical therapy and uh, strength training perspective. Yeah. And it's, I, th I think one of the things that hopefully we'll accomplish with this podcast is kind of piecing together different professional aspects of, of what certain people see in their practice that makes them think of their answer of what is preventive medicine and put together this kind of puzzle of, you know, a more complete picture of how do we look at preventive medicine as, you know, a group of future professionals, professionals, and, you know, even for the lay people listening, you know, what, sh what should preventive medicine mean to us uh, just as people? In that vein, uh, something that is super, super important right now, especially in the United States, uh, is low back pain. So it's one, we know it's one of the most common causes for a patient visit to a doctor in the United States. We know a large amount of the healthcare burden is involved with low, low back pain and uh, physical therapy as well deals with a lot of low back pain. And there tends to be a lot of uh, a lot of theories out there of why we have it, uh, how we treat it and what to do about it. But sometimes those ideas don't necessarily align with the evidence. So what, I know this is a deep rabbit hole to jump into right off the bat, but what are your thoughts on <laughs> kind of what the evidence says about low back pain and, and what can we be doing better as clinicians to address this problem? Yeah, that's a excellent point that there is a huge rabbit hole on this topic. I think, uh, right out of the gates, anything that I say, there will obviously be possibly holes in it. There will probably be some contrary evidence as there is a vast field of literature on this topic. But as a general, I don't think we can ever say that we necessarily know what is causing someone's low back pain. For the vast majority of humans, they're going to be experiencing what is called non-specific low back pain. And it's hard to put an exact number on it, but probably around 97% of cases are that, which is the majority and outside of that, and we're looking at, you know, highly specific things that are likely going to be managed through primarily hospital based care, such as like corda aquina syndrome, tumors, different stuff that's going to be necessitating a more significant degree of care. And for pretty much everyone else, we don't have a deeper specific 
diagnosis that we can necessarily give. You'll find lots of people that will provide them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the evidence actually supports that diagnosis. For instance, a lot of people will be given a diagnosis of disc herniation, spinal stenosis, uh, spondylolisthesis, all these different ones that you can find that are various anatomical deviations from what we perceive as normal. However, as you start to look into the base rates of these things and how often they occur in someone that doesn't have pain, as well as when you can find someone that has multiples of them and is experiencing pain at different sites, there's just a lot of things that start to outline that they're not necessarily so strongly linked with someone's pain experience. That's where we start to enter a lot more challenges in, you know, it's easy to notice these things and it's a little bit easier to point and try to address them. Whereas when we start to look at the literature that guides us in possibly other contributing factors to back pain, like socioeconomic status, access to healthcare, all these different things that probably contribute a lot more as well as what the person's meaning is to their back pain, it starts to get a lot more complicated where, you know, it's, if someone has a disc herniation, I can tell them that's your problem. And all we have to do is just snip it and you're good to go. In contrast, if someone is having low back pain because they have significant financial stresses that are associated with where they live, the people that they have around them, all these different things like that, that's not so easy to change. And that is a much more complicated thing to also explain to the person and to get them to be able to reconcile when their stressors come on and the pain that they have and what they can then do for it. And I think that's one of the big challenges that we have right now in the medical system is figuring out how we can transition to more care like that. 100% agreed. And I think one of the, you brought up so many different factors that go into back pain. And as you described, the medical system kind of has a really reductionist approach of how they approach a lot of medical conditions, uh, back pain included. And that also leads into the, like the diagnostic rabbit hole. Uh, so to say, uh, we had a uh, Dr. Austin Baraki on from Barbell Medicine and he talked about a lot of like overdiagnosis in cases where like you're mentioning, like on your Instagram post today, where you talked about disc herniations and back pain, where, um, a lot of times they'll just recommend surgery straight up and it, that disc herniation might not even be contributing to their pain. So that's why I think that, um, we don't have a lot of clarity on where we're going with back pain, a lot of different diagnoses, which is why, uh, prevention and other means of maybe getting rid of this back pain, not necessarily rid of it, but like reducing our risk for back pain is probably the better route to go until we have more diagnostic evidence of exactly what we should be doing for back pain. So, um, in that vein, um, is there anything you would recommend to people who might not have back pain now, but like want to prevent it? I think one of the things that we can consistently see, um, across a lot of research is that generally people who are of better overall health, while that is a vague term, do generally experience back pain to a less severity and less frequency. So, you know, taking care of a lot of things like your daily step count, your general sleep, uh, from both a quality standpoint and a quantity standpoint, reducing your comorbidities from other health standpoints. Like if you don't have, if you have, if you have diabetes, you will have a greater likelihood of experiencing chronic low back pain. And so if you can have diabetes managed more appropriately, that may benefit you from reducing your likelihood of risk of back pain. And that's going to come with a lot of other factors, probably like increasing your overall physical activity, managing your nutrition to a better degree. We also see that individuals who 
are generally overweight also have a higher risk of more low back pain. And so people don't necessarily love that answer, but in a lot of cases, it's like do a lot of the basic low hanging things consistently on a regular basis. And you'll probably do the best thing you could ever do from reducing your overall risk across back pain, across risk of death in almost every category. And it's not a very sexy answer. And a lot of people don't love it, but like sleep, sleep roughly eight hours a night, go walk at least 4,500 steps a day, Mm -hmm. have friends that don't drag you down, do things that you enjoy on a regular basis. Don't binge drink and manage your weight. Yeah. I mean, definitely. It's like those, those things that it's like almost like inherent of like things we all hear all the time. And it's like, you know, they actually make a difference when we start to actually do them, you know, um, kind of in, in terms of low back pain and clinicians, when someone comes in, do you feel that there's a, a big discrepancy right now between what the evidence would suggest about how we talk to people about back pain versus what happens in real life when someone comes in and, you know, maybe they do get the imaging or they get the MRI and, you know, the surgeons talking to them, well, you have the, you have the joints of a 90 year old that you have the, you have the discs of a nine year old. So can you kind of talk us about the nocebo kind of issues with talking to patients and narrative about back pain? Yeah, I think that's a major component of what we can do as clinicians better. Obviously like the previous conversation was about what the individual themselves can do. And a lot of that will benefit them from a standpoint of improving their health and also showing them the structural strength of their spine that they can handle different tasks. Because a lot of times when you go to meet a clinician across pretty much any field, they will likely tell you some sort of negative aspect about your body. It's a very unfortunate point, but usually that's the thing that gets blamed and pointed to for why someone is having pain. You can go to someone that is in, uh, you go and see a physical therapist, you go see a physician, you go see a surgeon, you go see a chiropractor or pretty much anyone in general. And you will likely be told that you have back pain because you slipped a disc or that you have something wrong with you or that you have a spine of a 90 year old. It's a very common narrative. And when we start to actually look into where people find meanings, um, because as we discussed previously, you know, pain doesn't necessarily match up with the structural aspect of someone's spine or the body in general. But a lot of times what we actually see is that the meaning that someone has around their body matches up more distinctly with either a, the person's pain or the way that the person manages their pain. And the meaning that people get about their body will heavily come from the experiences that they have with different types of healthcare professionals. And, you know, the point of this podcast is preventative medicine. And one of the easiest things that we could do as clinicians is watch the things that we say, and it will have a huge reduction on someone's risk of long-term disability. There's some great research, great research from a few different people, but one particularly is Ben Darlow down in New Zealand. And he's the one that's pretty much known for anything related to semantics and back pain. And he's highlighted numerous times that the words that clinicians say have a long standing um, impact on people. They'll go in and have people meet with a um, physician. He actually works in the field of medicine, so it's not necessarily as applicable to physical therapy, I guess, but I would argue otherwise. And, um, 
but he goes in, he has people go and meet with physicians. And then after they speak with the physicians, he asks them to describe what they got from the meeting. And usually it's these stories about, well, my spine is very fragile. My pain is from this thing and that it won't be better until surgery happens or it won't be better until X happens. And, you know, when we look at a lot of these different types of treatments that we can do for back pain, we do see relatively consistent consistently that, you know, it will go away in time. In most cases, you don't have to necessarily do anything. In other cases, you can do physical therapy and other types of conservative care and it will get better. The vast majority of back pain will improve with time and some sort of treatment. However, a lot of these people don't believe that because they're told that it won't get better until something changes. And when you actually compare the likelihood of someone seeing results from care, that heavily impacts it. The people that don't believe that they can get better until they have surgery will likely not get better until they have surgery. And again, that returns back to like, what is the story that we're telling as clinicians? If someone comes in and has back pain and I explain that their back is their spine is fractured or they have a disc herniation or that they have anything inherently wrong with them, you know, it's going to set them up to where they will believe that they can't get better until that's fixed. And how would physical therapy fix that? How would exercise fix that? How would any of these things do that? Like, it doesn't make sense. My spine is fractured. It won't get better from exercise. And in a lot of cases, they might perceive that it would actually be more negative for them to do that. That's one that in the shoulder, we have research on that, you know, when people are told that they have shoulder impingement, they often want to avoid exercise because they believe that it will make their shoulder worse. And we can see that in those people that they will then avoid exercise and get consistently worse across time. And we have similar research also on back pain where if someone is injured, sees a physician or some other healthcare provider that gives them some sort of belief like this, they usually have a further worsening of, of their actual health factors. And they're set up to have more chronic disability from it. In contrast, when someone is actually given the opposite story, when they're explained to how their back is strong, robust, and resilient, we now, in the last couple of years, have been seeing research emerge that when we can explain that to patients, it actually doesn't necessarily change how fast their back gets better, but it does increase how much function they have while having back pain, and it reduces their likelihood of returning back for further care. So that's like a huge impact when we start to consider in the U.S. system, the amount of money spent on seeing people is just oh, yeah. outrageous. And so if you can just have the simple thing of saying, you know, like, no, your back is okay, you'll be fine. You're going to have to give it some time. You can go do some physical therapy, do some exercise, whatever we so choose about that. But you'll be good. Your back is strong and it's killing it. And giving something like that and they don't end up having to come back and see you is huge. Yeah. I want to just emphasize when you were talking or just at a side note, kind of when you're talking about the American system with the amount of money that we spend on that, I'm reading an American sickness right now, which talks about kind of how broken our system is at kind of every level. And with the frequency of people who come in with back pain and how, like how like diagnostic rabbit hole, you get imaging, blah, blah, blah. It just keeps going on. There is a lot of expenditure there. So that's just been opening my eyes reading that book. But I just want to reiterate because it's so important what you said. And I think it provides a lot of value to whoever's listening to this because we have have some clinicians listening to this podcast. We might have some patients listening to this podcast. So I want to reiterate that um, 
how you perceive your pain in a sense, or your own resiliency from both like how a clinician would speak to their patient. So you have to be careful of how you're speaking to your patient and what words you're using in that communication. And then for the patient side of viewing yourself as being able to be uh, resilient and strong and being able to um, recover from whatever it is and not seeking surgery, not needing surgery to quote unquote better. So I think that was incredibly important to reiterate just because um, it provides a lot of value and also in the US uh, prevents a lot of economic burden as well. And then one thing I just kind of wanted to touch on is, is to get your thoughts on. So in terms of like, we're talking about preventive medicine in this podcast, do you think that having someone in their mind, if, you know, say they're an athlete or whatever, or just a regular person, just the knowledge that if they have a back tweak and they they wake up or they, something hurts or whatever to, to not automatically jump off that, that cliff, so to speak of like, Oh no, something is wrong with my back versus a mindset of like, Oh, you know, this is going to be annoying, but the natural history of this is going to go away. I can continue to do all my daily activities. So do you think that internal narrative of, or maybe the knowledge of knowing like, Hey, the back is very strong, resilient. And even for people who don't train or don't do anything, the natural history of back pain is that it goes away. Do you think having that knowledge just already would prevent a large number of trips to the doctor? Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually one of the key things that I try to express to any of my patients. Um, and you know, my friends and family, anyone that has back pain that wants to talk about it, that's one of the first things I discuss with them. And, you know, my neighbor just had some back pain recently. She was picking up her kid out of the crib and she was like, Oh my gosh, my, I think I broke my back. And I just gave her that simple point of that. It'll be okay. Give some time. Like natural history will occur. You'll be just wait and see. Don't worry about going to see anyone yet. Just continue to do your things and just watch what happens. And it's been about five days now. And I just saw her outside before we came on the podcast and she was waving, she's walking around, no issues. And I think like you said, a big detail there is that when you have the uncertainty and the fear, it can be extremely debilitating. And once you have the knowledge that to challenge that idea, it can hugely change your perspective on it and how you then go forth and manage it. Speaking of preventive medicine and maybe more treatment side, when it comes to back pain, when you're telling someone to kind of wait it out in a sense of take, uh, let the natural history take its course. Is there something that you're telling, um, these people or that you would want these people to do in terms of like stretching or strengthening? Because you saw uh, a lot of times when people do visit PT for these types of problems or like say they go the day after they get referred to PT right away, because that's kind of what <laughs> happens immediately when someone comes in with an MSK problem. Um, do you think it's appropriate to recommend stretching and like strengthening? And what's the role of that in general? It's interesting you said that because I don't know if you actually read the research on the likelihood of someone being referred to physical therapy for back pain, but it's actually not that high. Really? Uh, really? There's actually a, there's a much higher chance that someone would be referred um, either to a surgeon or to a chiropractor than there is to a physical therapist. Really? That's anecdotal evidence from the <laughs> clinic. It just seems that PT is like literally always right there. That, that I think is from a 2014 study. So it's probably relatively still accurate, but uh -huh. yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that actually surprises me quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Same. Yeah. So I think that differs if you're in a, um, a medical system that has a physical therapist on staff. So like if you're in maybe a hospital based system that has physical therapy there, but if we're talking about like outpatient, uh, physicians, then usually it'll be, yeah, that's the unfortunate case. It, well, yeah. And, um, in the case of physical therapists, you know, what the right thing to do is very tricky in my personal practice. What I do is I have a conversation with people where I first, you know, go through everything, make sure there's no red flags, anything of concern. 
And then we go through various tests where my goal through the tests is to actually show the person how robust and strong their spine is. I'm not looking to necessarily like find anything crazy that I think I need to address, but along the way we'll go through spinal flexion extension, like all these different things that hopefully the person will see, Oh, I can still do these things. And then we'll progress into different exercises as part of my assessment process, like deadlifting, squatting, different movements. And I'm not necessarily looking to prescribe anything. I'm just trying to see like how, where does this person's endpoint go? Okay. No, I don't think that I can handle anything more. And if I get to the point where someone says, you know, no, I, I don't feel comfortable. Like I can't deadlift and I can't find a strategy to be able to give them the confidence that they can. And I know that in their daily life and in the activities that they do, they need to be able to do that. Then I'm probably going to prescribe something in the form of exercise. I don't really prescribe stretching. Uh, it's pretty rare incident for me, but I'll pr- usually prescribe some form of an activity that is resembling what they need to get back to. And then my goal is just to prescribe it to the point at which they can then return back to doing the activities that they want to. And then when they're done with it. And so, you know, like if I have a person who's just walking in off the street, no high level activities. And, you know, we go through and we discuss all these other things that we previously talked about, like psychosocial factors, sleep, daily step count. I regularly have people like pull out their phones and look at their step count. And I have them have a, have a conversation about hydration and nutrition and that. And then once we get through all that, if the person has a almost full return to abilities with that, then I'm not going to prescribe anything. I discharge. And I usually will actually refer them to a gym in the local area with my aspirations that they'll then go and do that. And I fortunately have, I I practice out of two gyms and I also have connections at two other ones. So I can give away lots of information and I do have a a pretty good follow-up of people that go and join one of these gyms afterwards. And then in contrast, I also see a lot of higher level athletes where in those cases I am prescribing a lot more and I don't normally see people from multiple bouts personally. And just because like I'm very fortunate that I think when I, converse with patients. I'm able to give them a lot of confidence. I'm able to sell them really well that they can handle this themselves. And through that conversation, I get the perception from a patient if they are going to be able to then leave the appointment and crush it themselves, or if they're going to need a little bit more guidance along the way, probably around 80% of my appointments is the initial valuation. Like I just outlined. And at the end, I give them a few things I encourage them to continue to do. And then they get back to their strength and conditioning because again, most of those people are high level athletes. Like I train with a bunch of basketball players. I train with some baseball players, swimmers, and then also weightlifters. And I'll regularly have a baseball player come and see me for back pain where, you know, onset was like maybe at the start of the season, like just happened last year when I had three guys come in and they were, um, they hadn't done anything all preseason really. And they came, and they got into a heavy season to start going and they had back pain come on. And it was like, okay, well, in your case, I think that we do need to do some additional things to get you up to the demands that you're about to go and do. So we, I just explained to them what I wanted them to do. They sent me an email every now and then just to check in. And that was the end of it. In contrast, you know, I have the occasional appointment where I might see someone for a few sessions because they have no comprehension of how to do the exercises. I don't necessarily have someone that they are connected with that I feel confident to have them do. 
in, in the case there, then I'll see people for a few appointments. And that's what I try to get a lot of other physical therapists and a lot of other rehab professionals to do because I think like the long-term perspective of our abilities is not to just stand there and to prescribe people with like a thousand different things to do or to just watch someone do a stretch or anything like that. <laughs> like once someone can have the capabilities to perform it, you know, like one of the best things we can do is develop greater independence and provide someone with a greater self efficacy, provide someone with a greater internal locus of control. And I think that like those things are really important. And by me staying with the patient for a longer duration of time, it will reduce them being more, um, more in control and will then reduce how much self-efficacy they actually take in their own healthcare. And a big aspect of that, I think, again, comes back to like, how well can you sell that to the patient? And sometimes there are people that just want to be walked through everything, have their handhold, but I don't think that it's the majority of patients and the majority of people just need a little bit of a confidence boost. And then they can usually handle things themselves. I agree. I think that one of the things that we kind of overlook is the humanistic side of medicine where it's like, you know, sets and reps and prescription exercises, not that they, they don't hold value because they hold tremendous value in terms of the, the specific prescription of what we want to accomplish. But at the same time, having that relationship with the patient where you know what they need from a guidance level and a support level, because, you know, if you saw someone, you know, maybe someone with good, you know, already a good, maybe understanding of pain or something like that. And they just, they're like, you know what, I just need a, a more stepwise approach to get back to playing or whatever my sport is versus someone who's like, you know, I've never had back pain before. The only thing I know about back pain is that it's terrible. And then they're worried about their long-term ability to function. That's going to be two completely different needs in terms of what you're providing from an emotional and, and even, you know, from a, an emotional or I guess physician patient level. Right. Um, to kind of, to kind of sidestep just a little bit. I know we had entered this question talking about stretching, which has I think stretching has become one of the most controversial things kind of in the world of physical therapy and, and kind of the physical health realm, because it doesn't seem as if the evidence supports stretching, but it's one of those inherent things that maybe we all learn from a coach playing sports or you go to your primary care and they mention it, you know, do some stretching. So like, wh what are your thoughts on how do we, I guess, utilize it without going against what the evidence says, or do we use, utilize it at all? Yeah, I think anytime that we prescribe anything, the goal should be to have a very good purpose behind why it's being utilized. And when it comes to stretching, I don't think that it necessarily is going to provide a ton of return for its investment. Whereas we have a lot of other things that might provide more return. And that's where I kind of jump to in most cases is you know, like what is going to provide the best benefit for my patient with the least effort on their part. And, you know, let's say that I think that stretching is going to be beneficial for someone's back pain. It's possible, I guess. If that person enjoys stretching, if that person, you know, uh, likes it and actually wants to do it, that's going to increase my likelihood of prescription in con. Like that's, that is the case sometimes when I deal with someone that is a person that enjoys yoga or any sort of Pilates class, stuff like that, where they're going to actually be normally doing stretching in contrast, 
And when I'm working with like a weightlifter or a powerlifter or someone who likely doesn't really like to stretch, I highly doubt that I will prescribe that in any situation, especially when there are other buckets that are going to, you know, probably increase the necessary needs that they have uh, to return back to their function and get back to doing what they want to do. You know, like when we're looking at stretching, what physiologically is it going to provide that is superior to any of these other things and not really anything there. You know, like if I can have someone either do a hamstring stretch or an RDL, the RDL can provide almost everything that that static stretch can and more. And now if someone is highly irritable, cannot tolerate much loading is extremely sensitive to some kind of sheer force, anything like that. Okay. Well then maybe I might gear towards the hamstring stretch as the initial point to start the loading process. If they are so irritable, but I don't find that in most cases. And usually I'm able to find some sort of modification to exercises that are um, more challenging than stretching. And I don't think that stretching is bad, that it does anything inherently negative to the person, but I just, I really don't see it being that beneficial for the vast majority of people. If we're getting into the conversation of like an extremely high level athlete, we might get into a different point of conversation, but that's probably more from a performance standpoint than it is from a rehab standpoint. Yeah. I mean, you often hear that somewhat reductionist ideology of like, well, you know, your back hurts because you've got tight hamstrings or, you know, you've got this insert muscle imbalance, tightness, whatever here that you need to stretch this side because it's tighter than the other side. Um, so I, I think I agree. I think it's not even necessarily that it's harmful to prescribe stretching. It's just one of those things where if you can get the same benefit plus more benefits from some sort of loaded movement with a similar, I guess, physiologic stress, then why not go that route? Right. Yeah. And I think what, uh, what you were mentioning before were physical therapy and just education, educate, educating, sorry, educating the patient of like what they can do themselves to develop that resiliency and that self-efficacy. I think that's missing a lot of times when you look at specifically physical therapy. Um, it seems that most patients just keep coming over and over and over to physical therapy. Whereas the patients who for some reason anecdotally seem to be more successful are the ones that come maybe once or twice to like learn what they're going to do and then go from there. But when you look at physical therapy, especially in the United States. I don't know how it is in Canada specifically, but, um, it just seems that there's like a one-stop shop where you just like, okay, you stretch this, you strengthen this. And it's not even like a very specific, uh, strengthening prescription where they're like, do RDLs because of this, like you mentioned, um, do some squats. They're just like, here's some baby exercises with some like pink or blue, like the small dumbbells. Some banded external rotations with, uh, exactly. Yeah. And then we'll see you next week. And then next week comes, oh, we'll hit you with a little ice and then keep doing this and then on. So how do you think, uh, we came to this point? if that's not really supported by evidence and it's not really successful or helpful to the patient. Well, I think the first thing is that whenever we're talking about, you know, like how did we get to where we are, uh, especially coming from a standpoint, like the three of us are from an evidence-based standpoint, the evidence-based movement's only been around for like 27 years or something like that. Like it's not a long duration and before, and especially that's evidence-based medicine, not evidence-based physical therapy. And so then evidence-based physical therapy has really not been around for long duration. Um, if you start to look at most of the literature being, uh, utilized in the actual education system of physical therapists, it's not been a very long duration. And, 
most people that are in physical therapy do not have a good comprehension of actually how to read research, how to find research, any of these kinds of things. And that inherently sets us up to be at a point where we are less likely to utilize it and more likely to go to things like post hoc fallacy and other forms of um, bias and limitations in critical reasoning to start to make decisions. You know, like if you meet most people that have pain, some sort of injury, if you give them enough time, they're going to get better. I think it's like 75 to 80% of musculoskeletal cases will clear up within four to 12 weeks. If nothing is done, nothing. (laughs) And so then, you know, you figure if the majority of people go and see a physical therapist and they do something, they're probably going to feel better in four to 12 weeks. And that will then make you believe that what you just did was good. And Mm -hmm. the most dangerous statement that you can ever hear from a long-term practitioner is that I've just always done it that way. And it's a very common story and it's because they've seen success because there's so many problems with that. Exactly. It it works, but then you have survivorship bias and you have all these problems that come with practicing based just off of what you believe. And the challenges I think that a lot of people struggle with reconciling that where you tell them that the successes that they've had are not number one, as good as what they think Two, they've had a lot more failures than they realize. And also that a lot of what they do doesn't work by the way that they think it does. If it does work, like if you've spent the last 15 years practicing as a primarily manual therapist in the field of physical therapy. And I tell you that, Number one, most of your results are just due to placebo. Two, any, most of the results that are not due to placebo are due to contextual effects, like how you explain your intervention to the patient and that they also have a drastic natural history occurring for them and that essentially nothing more is occurring for you. Well, you're probably going to say, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on here, but you're probably telling me to shut the shut up and like stop talking about that. <laughs> possibly, possibly a lot meaner statements. And especially if their financial situation is primarily based on them doing that modality, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. And that is unfortunately the case that I think we're heavily in uh, in my field, where the overall level of knowledge for critical reasoning for reading research, all these things is relatively quite low, at least in my experience. Um, I think that a lot of people in the field kind of have scraped by, so to speak, and been able to continue to provide treatments that have been relatively low efficacious and, you know, low value care. And we've been in a medical system that is essentially looking to please patients, not necessarily provide patients with the best care. And we're starting to see that change in a lot of ways, primarily because I think payers don't want to just keep wasting money. And that's probably going to set up a lot of people to struggle in the coming future from different healthcare areas like physical therapy, because there's a lot of benefit that physical therapists can provide, but a lot haven't been doing it in the right ways. 
Definitely. Um, speaking of evidence-based, um, one of the other things that for some reason, physical therapists and a bunch of other doctors and just people in sports in general seem to say is that you can prevent injuries. And I think Jason and I, and it looks like by that smile, you were probably the agreement that you can't necessarily prevent injuries per se. You can't say like, I'm going to get a hamstring tear like two weeks from now. So I got to prevent that right now. Like we don't know when injuries are going to happen and we don't like, there's no way to prepare for it. Like an athlete is not like, they're not going out in the field knowing they're going to tear a hamstring that day and trying to prevent it. And I think a lot of the discussion needs to be more framed around injury risk reduction and through the lens of um, evidence-based injury risk reduction. Like that's more of the thing that we should be doing. So what do you think um, we can be doing more to reduce our risk of injury in that sense versus preventing injuries? Yeah, I think one of the first things is having the overall healthier person. That's a huge one. And within that context, a few things that really get ignored are, for instance, like sleep. When um, you look at a lot of the research that's around injury risk and sleep, having about like a half an hour more sleep per night has a huge reduction on injury risk for most athletes. In fact, it can be one of the biggest things that we can do from a percentage standpoint. And then as we start to layer on more stuff, it gets honestly a lot murkier when we get into how much other stuff has benefited and a big detail is like the quality of statistics that have been done in a lot of the areas um currently in the injury risk area particularly like um if this was like three or four years ago you'd hear about acute chronic workload ratio being pushed really hard and that it's highly beneficial to you know quote unquote manage loads appropriately but we're seeing that's not so clear and it's uh, way murkier than we thought it was because the statistics that were utilized in those studies weren't necessarily the best ones possible. Um, so the, it's, uh, it's a little tricky when we start to get into some of that stuff. Like we do see that for most people utilizing interventions like resistance training reduces the likelihood that someone will get injured. The degree that it does is going to vary. The type of treatment or the type of actual exercise intervention that we utilize will have a varying effect. Like, for, for instance, in the case of... Can you guys still hear me? Yeah, yeah. we can hear you. Oh, my uh, AirPods just died. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so when we're looking at the exercise interventions that we can provide, you know, we see that the Nordic hamstring curl is one that stands out usually as being beneficial for injury reduction, particularly in the case of hamstring strains. However, we don't see that necessarily being implemented very well. And we also haven't seen it done consistently for a long duration. And when we're looking at the Nordic hamstring curl and comparing with other exercises, we don't know what is inherently beneficial about it compared to, for instance, a RDL or a Nordic hamstring, or I mean, a, a razor curl and these other types of hamstring exercise that we could provide. And that's one of the key things that the injury reduction standpoint of research is relatively quite young too, especially from monitoring if we're actually having a good effect. There's been a lot of time where different exercises and different treatments were being utilized to reduce injury risk. They weren't actually measuring if it was having a meaningful effect. And over time, we've seen now that a lot of it wasn't having a meaningful effect. So... As we've transitioned to more of these better studies, we've also seen that it's questioning how much some of the previous stuff was done. And it's now starting us to get 
into more detail about what we're providing and how it's having a benefit. Yeah. So what it sounds like is that we really don't necessarily know exactly what's the best for injury risk reduction. There's a lot of uh, research currently going on in that field and maybe like trying to revise some of the past research as it wasn't the best. And it seems that one of the most common sayings, I guess, is that problems lead to other problems. So that original problem being just being an unhealthy state or like not sleeping, like your basics, not sleeping enough, um, not eating nutritiously and like fueling your body appropriately. So I think a lot of it seems to come down to those very basics and based on that i haven't been sleeping very much so uh it looks like i'm about to get injured soon <laughs> you don't know yeah, but- you don't know sebo yourself <laughs> yeah. the, the, the thing is even more complicated once we start to enter team sports and you start to layer on other parts of you know when we're looking at when injuries occur they're not just the single person by themselves they're going to avoid someone on the opposite team or someone collides with them and it starts to layer on you know how much does my Nordic hamstring curl have a meaningful effect when they're going to be then resisting and deviating around another player or being collided in by another player. And, you know, as you start to layer on those pieces, it starts to question which things we're doing and also getting into the piece of, you know, most athletes have a limited training reserve and you can only do so much with them. And so then really deciding what is going to be the most efficacious choice starts to get more and more complex. Yeah. So it almost, it almost sounds like from what you're saying is not only is the research limited, but the topic itself is hard to be hard to gain evidence on because of the, I guess, variable nature of different sports, right? Because with studies, usually it's going to be something relatively specific, right? Like hamstring injuries in soccer players is kind of the big one that I've seen for the Nordic hamstring curls. Right. Um, but then I've seen some people, I mean, it doesn't sound, doesn't sound terrible at face value where you maybe take the general principles from a study that showed that, Hey, eccentrics with hamstring curls led to less injuries in the muscle. So maybe if we applied that to X muscle here, it could have some benefit, not necessarily evidence-based, but maybe evidence-based adjacent. (laughs) (laughs) that that, that would be you know utilizing the current best evidence that we have and applying it appropriately and that would i think still be evidence-based it's just you know limited in how strongly you can stand by that statement if you take the nordic hamstring curl information and you apply it to the triceps well sure it's similar but it's not the same thing and sure we can stand by that it will likely have some sort of benefit the degree of that benefit will vary. Yeah. Um, I think we should start wrapping it up soon because uh, you've got other very important matters to deal with, (laughs) with very special guests. So we want to thank you for this podcast, um, just your time. We got one last question for you that we ask all of our guests. And it's kind of the super reductionist question now that after all these episodes, we're like, this is kind of a a question. After the Dr. Baraki (laughs) interview, we're like, maybe this isn't the... Yeah, but it's it's still going to be our thing. And that is, um, if you're like getting coffee at Starbucks or Tim Hortons, um, up in Canada and you got two minutes waiting for your coffee and someone asks you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in that two minutes? Oh man, that's a, that's a tricky one. You got two minutes though. (laughs) Did did Austin ask you, how do you define health? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think that in that case, I'm going to tell people those low hanging fruit things. You know, uh, on a regular basis, oh, okay. <laughs> on a regular basis, you're going to need to get some sleep. You're going to need to 
get in a decent amount of steps. You're going to have to be generally physically active. You should probably participate in something in a social network that you enjoy. Go join a gym go play some volleyball, go do race walking. I don't care. Just go and do something that you're going to be around other people that you can enjoy. Get into a dance group. Um, and then you should try to eat in a meaningful way that allows you to manage your weight at a good level. What that is, is super complicated and not very clear, but most people, <laughs> most, most, people most people should not be carrying around additional extra weight. It's just not a good idea. And so if you can make sure to have a reasonably good waist circumference ratio to your hips, you're going to be set. But yeah, I'm probably going to go past two minutes on that. So yeah, no, that's, that's fine. That's great advice. Um, we'll put all of your socials everywhere, uh, already. Um, that goes without saying, but is there somewhere you want people to find you that you're like working on right now? Some project? Uh, no, I appreciate you guys having me on. Sorry for the little bit of abrupt ending, but, uh, no, I'm good. People can find me anywhere. You can Google me. I'm relatively searchable. All right. All right. Well, Sam, thank you for joining us again today. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast with some more uh, questions. And uh, it looks like your, pa- your patient there is demanding more of your attention right now. So <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll let you go. All right. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Guys. Thank you very much. And, uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Definitely love to come back in the future. Awesome. Yep. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Prevent Podcast. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thank you all for listening and we will see you next time.